0: You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and to ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants here for our, our Byzantine lectionary reflection for the eighth Sunday after Pentecost. With the theme of of Christ who acts through us, continuing on the theme we've been following really since Pentecost and even before, but primarily since Pentecost in this time which we're living in the bright light of the gift of the Holy Spirit in this kind of apostolic age in which we recall what took place in the lives of the apostles and then now is applied to our life as a church. And then placing that in uh, maybe in a broader context of the unity which we find in Christ and that there shouldn't be divisions within our community, although there were divisions even in the early church problems that the church faced. We face similar problems today, and we ought to be on on guard against those problems because the church has been dealing with it for 2,000 years. So it's nothing new that we have, say, factions in the church. We're going to see this very clearly in the epistle that we read today. There are factions. There are groups, huh? But, uh, but, But those groups ought to be Brought together as one in Christ. And it's a big reminder to us today in our church. So let's jump right in here. We're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, starting with verse 14 through 22. Matthew 14, 14 through 22. And the Epistle, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. So, Father Sebastian, let's start here in the Gospel of Matthew and as I usually do. i ask you to kind of contextualize this text for us, starting in chapter 14 of the Gospel of Matthew, verse 14. Now, as he went ashore, he saw a great throng, and he had compassion on them, and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a lonely place, and the, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said, "They need not go away. You give them something to eat." They said to him, "We have only five loaves here and two fishes." And he said, "Bring them here to me." Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to the heaven and blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Then he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. As I said, Father, if you could kind of lay out for us the context in which this miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fishes takes place in the gospel context. Sure. So I think it'd be helpful
1: to look at a map here. In fact, this is at the tail end of the Galilean ministry. So Jesus has been teaching and preaching in that northern part of the of the sea of Galilee on the shore there in a, a very small area and the actual location where this takes place is right in the heart of this area where he's been preaching from really down in Gennesaret all the way up to Capernaum and between Gennesaret and Capernaum there there are no towns. Even today, the only thing there is maybe a hotel. You have some churches on these holy sites where these things occurred. But even today, the the remnants of those two towns, Gennesaret and Capernaum, you can still see that this was a this was a lonely place. There was nothing out there, and you've got crowds of it says five thousand men plus women and children. So you could guess somewhere maybe in the ten to fifteen thousand range is a lot of people. And they're out there in the middle of nowhere, and evening is coming. So how are you going to feed these people? So the disciples say, hey, send them to one of the towns, which would have been Gennesaret, at Capernaum. They could go a few miles one way or another, get some food, get some lodging, and then come back. And, and in, in fact, it's helpful also because to look at that place because it says in that last verse, it says, well, he dismissed the crowds. The next verse it says, and after that he dismissed the crowds. He went up into the hills by himself. To pray, and you and I have been there many times. That beautiful little cave, that is just above the spot where he multiplied the loaves.
0: I'm going to share a picture again because it is quite beautiful. This is the area right here of what is called today Tabga, or the place of the of these springs. It's here that that you're saying, yeah, you're right. It's, there was there's Capernaum is is here north on this road. Tiberias south. there, there was nothing in this area, and it was kind of a a deserted place although very rich in its fresh water and also in the fish the, the, that's the kind of right there where the where the fishermen recall they loved to fish in that area and you can still visit the beautiful church there today the multiplication of the the loaves and fishes and like you're saying there's that cave just above i love that spot that cave is unknown by the by the tourists that go through there because there's not a nice little you know steps and and ramps and everything like that. You gotta kinda of climb over some rocks and up the hill. And there's a cave there. Just it is like it's like the throne of a king overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And and what's amazing, what's beautiful, the local Christians have always held that to be the location where Jesus took his disciples to pray. And uh, and I've been up there with, with just with thirteen people. You know, Jesus and the twelve apostles have been up there and the cave is just the right size for that. So it's there that he loved to pray. And just below that is you're calling this 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 lonely place where they were kind of in no man's land, as you're saying, um, except for the the these provisions of the of the five loaves and, and two fishes. Father, there is uh in the gospel account another multiplication of loaves and fishes that some people have said is just like maybe the same thing, but a just, you know, different accounts of it in different places in the gospel. But, it, but it, first, what's the difference between the two times when Jesus multiplies the loaves and fishes? There are some differences in the account.
1: Yeah, and it's the, the differences are really important for Matthew. So in Matthew's gospel, where we have an early, this is, this is the earliest of the four gospels. It's written for a Jewish, Christian, Palestinian audience. And uh, and so there's a lot of references to Judaism and the Old Testament in Matthew's gospel, as we've done in, in studies on the Gospel of Matthew yeah. for the ICC. And so here what we have is at the end of the Galilean ministry, Jesus has been preaching and teaching to the Jews in Galilee. And in fact, he had said earlier in chapter 10 to his disciples, don't go anywhere among the Gentiles or even a Samaritan, just stick right here and work on these people here. So early in Jesus' ministry, as he's teaching and preaching, he's working primarily among the Jews, and he's teaching his disciples to do that first as well. Now, what happens is at the end of the ministry, he then multiplies, there's this crowd, this is kind of like the the end of the story of the Galilean ministry for the Jews. He multiplies the loaves for them, and the the number five is important here, five loaves for 5,000 men. Obviously, you can hear the five. You think, well, the Torah, maybe? Is there something going on here? And and yeah, because they have 12 baskets left over, 12, the number of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you can hear the Jewishness there and that Old Testament imagery, and all commentators point that out. But the next multiplication story is going to be after this, when Jesus then will leave this region. He goes off for a little vacation with his disciples to Lebanon. They go to the beach over in Lebanon. They go to that region, that coastal area, way off in Gentile land. And, and now he shows his disciples with the conversation with the Syrophoenician woman or the Canaanite woman who's begging for her daughter to be healed. He shows that, that the ministry is also for the Gentiles, that, he was, that they must start teach and preach among the Jews like Jesus did. But then once they've exhausted that, They are to then move out into the Gentile region, which will be their work until His second coming. And so that's why Matthew's gospel concludes with Jesus telling His disciples to now go out and baptize all nations. So early on in the ministry, He teaches and preaches among the Jews, but then at the tail end of His ministry, He He then shows the disciples. That the Gentiles are going to come into the kingdom of God through faith. And that's why that woman, he says, Great is your faith. He heals her daughter, and then he comes back down on the on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the on the Galilee of the Gentiles, on the east side, where he had sit not too far from where those swine had gone into the into the lake. And there he multiplies seven loaves for 4,000. And if anyone knows biblical imagery and numbers from the Old Testament, this is a reference here in the New Testament to the Gentiles. And so the multiplication of loaves here for the Jews, and then the multiplication for the Gentiles. And Matthew preserves those two multiplication stories, in, and they're in two different locations on the Sea of Galilee, and at two different moments in the, in the ministry. And he shows that on purpose, and he, he highlights the distinction of those two things, Uh, the two multiplications in the next chapter uh, after that second one, that's in chapter 16 as well. So there are two different multiplications, have two different purposes. They're related showing that Jesus's ministry is for the Jews and the Gentiles for all people, but there's an order of operations. We'll see the apostles doing that in Acts, preaching Jerusalem, then Judea, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And so this is part of Jesus's teaching and preparing of these disciples for the job that just before them
0: you know i'm glad you 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 kind of end your comments there with with this is a preparation for the for the disciples for the apostles to go out and and bring the good news which jesus is in some sense planted the seed we're going to pick this up in the epistle in which we we learn of the ministry of the apostles uh which say is it maybe is is best shown here in this gospel text in which in which it's the apostles that find the, the, the boy, and, and it's the apostles to go out and serve, but it is Christ who multiplies the loaves and fishes. It is Christ who is the source of the sustenance, or the source of life of mankind. Paul's going to get into this in his epistle that we're about to look at. These multiplications are brought together in the Gospel of John, As a foundation for his teaching about the Eucharist in John 6, I mention this because there's been maybe even recently some theologians or theologians who want to explain away the miracle by saying this: the miracle that took place here in the gospel is a is a miracle of sharing, of generosity of the people that are there. Uh, the problem with that, with that is that it, it's quite the opposite, especially as it's shown forth in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, it is the people that are around Jesus who are struggling with their own, in some sense, selfishness, their kind of feed-me-first kind of an attitude. Um, and it's Jesus who reverses that and is the source of their life and which is the focus of the gospel, and it's the focus that the church places on the epistle today, too. It's not you or me who are doing the work. It's not, in a sense, the focus of the generosity of the community, but then the generosity of God, who heals our body by, so as to show us that he is also going to heal our soul. We just recently uh, heard in the uh, in the gospel account the healing of the para- of the paralytic, in which Jesus says, "Your sins are forgiven." And then when they throw up their arms, the, those standing around, "Well, how dare he say this?" He says, "Look, what's the greater miracle that you that you forgive a man's sins, or that you make him walk again? Obviously, the forgiveness of sins is the greater miracle. But that you might see and know." he makes them walk. And this is the purpose of of this multiplication of the loaves to allow us to realize that Jesus has come to heal us and heal us. Not only now in our body, right, by feeding us the in the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, but drawing us in to the Eucharistic liturgy in which he's going to feed our spiritual life. Also Um, it's important that we don't impose upon the text, modern notions of biblical exegesis, but that we rely upon the tradition of the church, the fathers of the church, the teachings of the church for 2,000 years. Uh, Jesus indeed multiplied loaves and fishes, and through that showed us that he is going to feed us in such a generous way to feed the multitudes Mm -hmm. with a share in his blessed life. Now, coming back then, about this image of Christ who gives life, the apostles who minister to distribute that life to the community. Let's come and take a look at the epistle text, which is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. Brethren, I beseech you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all say the same thing and that there is no dissensions among you, but you be perfectly united in one mind and one purpose. For I have been informed about you, my brethren, by those of the house of Chloe, that there are quarrels among you. Now, this is what I mean. Each of you says, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos or I am of Cephas or I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Caius, Let, lest anyone should say that you were baptized in my name. I baptized also the household of Stephanus. I am not aware of having baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the good news, not with the skill of eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be made useless. As usual, Father, give us the context here in Paul's writings and his journeys in his ministry as an apostle of Christ. Paul was
1: journeying, at this point, he's in the city of Ephesus when he writes this letter. He's on his third journey, we've talked about those journeys before so we don't need to get into the the other ones but the third journey he passes from from Antioch up through Asia Minor through Turkey and he ends up in Ephesus and when he gets to Ephesus he he's met by Chloe's people this is a woman of high standing in the church in Corinth and she has she's the leader with others of the of the Pauline faction in the church in Corinth Paul founded the church in Corinth but in his absence there are other individuals who have moved into the region and have started to divide the church with different teachings that Paul did not teach them and so the church is now divided in different groups and they're identifying themselves as well I'm with Paul well I'm with kepha with Peter I'm with apollos or well i'm with christ and and so paul has to write a letter back to the church in corinth to try and heal some of these divisions and to let them know that he's coming he's on his way he's in ephesus which is just across the the sea there and he'll be going up into macedonia first and then coming down through macedonia to greece and so it's going to be a little while for paul a few more months before he arrives but he wrote this letter back to them to to get along
0: he says a very interesting phrase here, Father. Christ did not send me to baptize. And I think that probably is a little bit um, like an eye-opener, or at least your ears perk up. What's he mean by that? Because I, th- I would have figured he would have said something quite different than that, <laughs> that he was to go out and baptize. In fact, St. Paul, of all, the, of all the early Christians, is known for his writings on baptism as, and, and so forth. So maybe you can give us a little insight there.
1: Yeah, and in fact, if you read in Acts, you see Paul baptizing all over the place. You know, so uh, when he's in the uh, the jailer's house, baptizes him and his whole family. So Lydia, the seller of purple goods, and her family baptizes all of them. When he's in in chapter 19, when he actually uh, when he's in Ephesus, it, he baptizes some individuals that he found there that who are disciples of John the Baptist, and they had not yet had a Christian baptism, so he baptizes them. So he uh, lays his hands on them. So. There's we we see Paul baptizing everywhere he goes. So, what does he mean? Christ not sending to baptize. And it, I think it's I'm glad you raised this point because a lot of times in Protestantism today, coming from Zwinglianism, an anti sacramental theology, that well, baptism is really not central to the Christian message. Baptism really doesn't matter. Baptism is a thing you do once you've accepted Christ, this intellectual ascent. And then the spirit comes into you. This whole intellectual internal thing happening, which is has nothing to do with the material world. It's really dualism in many ways. Then, if you have time, someday when you get old enough, and if you like, you make a public proclamation in front of the community by having someone pour water over your head. And so, baptism is critical and essential because Christ commanded and the apostles commanded. It, However, it really doesn't mean anything. It has no real substance to it. It's just an outward declaration of who you are. That's the Zwinglian uh, idea of baptism. And unfortunately, that's, uh, there's a lot of that strain of Protestantism in American Protestantism, especially in the Baptist groups, which come from that. So, uh, Paul did not, if, if Paul really meant Christ did not send me to baptize, as these groups will sometimes point out, see, Christ, Paul said that. He wasn't, even Paul wasn't sent to baptize. Come on. Well, if you re- it says, "I was sent not to baptize but to preach the gospel, and what he's talking about there is an order of operations. If Paul was not sent to baptize as we already mentioned, we got major problems because Paul's baptizing people everywhere he goes, so Paul's contradicting the will of God knowingly, and he baptized the whole house of stephanus he says, well, Paul, what were you doing baptizing their house if you weren't sent so He's talking on order of operations. This is a Semitic way of speaking. I was not sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. To translate that Semitic style of speaking into Indo-European speaking, into Greek or into English, would be, Christ did not send me to, to baptize, but first and foremost to preach the gospel. And because if, when, if he doesn't preach the gospel, then there's no one to baptize. So the preaching of the gospel is what what produces the fruit of individuals who are repentant now and want to be baptized and enter into the body of Christ. But for Paul, uh, as you mentioned, if there's any, any new Testament author that emphasizes the, re, the sacramental reality that of baptism and what happens in it, it's Paul.
0: So you, you bring up this preaching uh, business as his primary um, mission that is given to him or at least first in order of time as far as, you know, he's got to do this first as a, as his primary mission. But then he ends up with this strange phrase in the epistle, a strange line in which he says, not with the skill of eloquence, right? Christ not send me a baptism but to preach the good news, not with a skill of eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be made useless. I love this because this sentence, because this is one of those things that we just say in the epistle and they're like, we move on to the Alleluia verses, right? Like, let's move on because it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to us. And so maybe you could help us a little bit, in, especially in this kind of Semitic way of talking that you're you're mentioning, where he says, "Not with the skill of eloquence, lest the cross, the, lest the cross of Christ be made useless."
1: So. Paul, before he arrived in Corinth, before he founded that church, had been in Athens. And we all know that story. When he was in Athens, he's walking around waiting for Timothy and Silas to arrive. They're, they're running a little late. And, and he he walks around. He sees all these temples. And he sees one to the unknown God. And so he begins to preach. And they, they take him to the Areopagus, this you know, open area where they can all listen to him preach. And so he's preaching to probably thousands of people there all of a sudden. And so... Uh, and Paul is trained in rhetoric and philosophy. He's from Tarsus. There, there are a number of cities in Asia Minor in that area that are known for their schools of philosophy and rhetoric. Two of the most important are Corinth and Tarsus. And, so, and these are also Roman colonies. So Paul grew up in a city that is very similar to Corinth as far as its Greek background mm-hmm. and its, its status in the Roman Empire. It was known for its schools of philosophy and schools of rhetoric. So Paul knows this stuff. He knows how to speak the philosophical language of the Greeks. He knows how to use the rhetorical devices and, and language of, of the Greeks, but he decided when he went from Athens to Corinth, which was not very far. He it was right there, just you know. Uh, so when he got there, he decided that after his experience of the Areopagus, that he would simply preach Christ and Him crucified, and of course risen from the dead, because of a dualistic problem. There, they were these these Corinthians there would have had an issue with with them the actual body of Jesus, that if he died, that he'd been raised from the dead, and a number of the issues you see Paul get into in this epistle. And so what Paul has to do when he comes there is preach the gospel in a very simple way, focusing on the death and resurrection of Christ, which is a major theme of this epistle. And he does this, though using rhetoric and philosophy would have been really helpful here. He avoids it. And the reason why he says, is because he wanted the, the gospel to be heard by them, the, the foundation layer. Not that he doesn't want to use philosophy and rhetoric, which he actually does in this epistle. This epistle is loaded with philosophy and rhetoric. But it's secondary, just like, as you mentioned, the baptism to the preaching of the gospel. He wanted their knowledge and acceptance of Christ not to rest on philosophy or rhetoric. And the reason is, and he says this, and in, in, we can look at this in chapter 2, he says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, the gospel and lofty words of wisdom. So, fancy talking and, and philosophy. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling that my speech, this is verse 4, and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstrations of the spirit and power. That and there's that, the, that that mm-hmm. or therefore, in Paul's epistles are so important. We need to underline that. So why? That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. As you continue to read, we're going to find out what's going on. Is There are individuals who have moved in the region, and they're misleading the community using rhetoric and philosophy to redirect them uh, in, in, a, in an alternative form of the gospel. And so Paul knows that, you know, Paul's trained in rhetoric and philosophy. When he comes, if he preaches the gospel and their understanding of it is, is founded on f- philosophical principles and rhetoric, then when someone else comes in after him, if they preach another gospel in with philosophy and rhetoric, it would be very easy for these individuals to be misled. Because Paul knows there's other individuals who are as trained as he is or better trained in philosophy and rhetoric. But what Paul has is the real philosophy, the real rhetoric. What Paul has is the wisdom of God, the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, the anointed one, he has the Spirit. And it's Paul and not some heretic coming in after him who can give demonstrations and proofs of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. And no charlatan coming in after him in his absence with fancy talking and fancy philosophy is going to be able to have demonstrations of the spirit by which they might mislead the community.
0: Mm. You know, Father, maybe we can just wrap this all up by coming back to the, to the, to the gospel text as our foundation and, and seeing this epistle in that light that it is, it is Christ who baptizes and how important it is during this time after Pentecost that we, it's a, it's a big reminder to us in our communities that we should not be following. I mean, you mentioned the, the false teachers and things like that. But Paul's even saying, look, apart from the pa- false teachers, um, don't even be a follower of me. You don't be a, in a sense that you're not a, a, Pauline, a Paulist, if you will, right? You're a, you're, you're, you're a Christian. And it is Christ who baptized you, not Cephas or Paul or... Paulos. it is christ who baptizes how important this is you know that we we have an understanding in the church of the ministry of the church that we are given a participation in the great work of jesus christ it is, it is christ who multiplies the loaves and fishes it is the apostles who distribute that miracle and that gift and uh, not that they are not true participants not that we're not true and authentic participants and this is the beauty of it. It's no longer i who live but it's christ who lives in me it's a big reminder to our communities that, you know, you love your priest, you don't love your priest. You know, they liked Paul, they didn't like Paul. It doesn't really, it, that's not the point. It is Christ who has made himself present in us and through us. But when we go to holy confession in the church, it is it is to Christ that we confess our sins. When we're healed in the church, it is Christ who brings that that healing. It is, and as I said, it is Christ who raises us from the dead in holy baptism. It is Christ who stands at the altar to give us uh, give us a communion in his body and in his blood. And all of us now who are baptized into him have been made one with him. How important that is, as we look in our communities and the different factions. First of all, there's the faction that likes father and there's the faction that doesn't like father, right? But then there's the there's the Syrian table and the Palestinian table and the uh, the, or the Ukrainian group in the corner, the American, as I call it in my parish, the American quarter in the hall, right? So they go got like in Jerusalem, you know, it's the the, uh, the 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 it's the American quarter, or the or you know the or the Iraqis that sit together. God bless them. They want to they want to live together and be friends, and that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But we also have to see in one another, not just you know, as St. Paul is saying, you know, you're a follower of this person, you're a follower of this person. You have this particular pious devotion, or you have this. No, no, no. We are Christians in Christ, and therefore we, we serve one another in Christ. Regardless of where we're from, our skin color, our background, we serve one another in Christ in love. And we come and we, to the ministry of the church given to us at the hands of the priest and realize that it is Christ with all of the weaknesses and, and so forth of the priest himself. It is Christ who comes to us, and therefore it is Christ that we bow down to worship. To him be glory both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting Institute of